0: Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Well, we are uh, continuing this teaching series that we've called, uh, over the Lenten season, we've called this Under the Sign of the Cross. And for the five weeks that we are leading up until, um, uh, not Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday was last week, uh, leading up to Palm Sunday, uh, we are unpacking the elements of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. And again, we kind of mentioned this last week, but I wanna say it again because it's important for us to remember that when we talk about the gospel, We cannot make the gospel simply about an announcement being made for those who have yet to find Jesus. It is that for sure, but it is more than just an evangelistic tool. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we still need the gospel. We need to be people who can speak the gospel to one another. And here's what happens when we do that. Uh, It will reveal to us who we are, it will help us to realize again who God is, and what he is doing in Jesus, and then it will always coax us to respond appropriately in light of that. And you and I still need to be people who are softened in our hearts, that we are responding to the work of Jesus in our lives. And so if you are with us last week, uh, we began in Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Many of us maybe know that story. It kind of gets summed up in our Bible, a little heading that says, The Fall of Humanity. And we've been told that in the creation account, all that God had made was very good, Uh, Everyone's in a place of shalom, but now we feel this disconnect, right? We look at our world and it's broken, we just prayed about it, right? You know, natural disasters are happening. And on top of that, we see areas of conflict or injustice or of shame or of selfishness and all those sorts of things. And so Genesis 3 as a text in the scriptures invites us to understand how it is that this is the world that we live in. How did it go from being a perfect place of shalom to a place that is uh, full of, of difficulty and distress. And so we see in this story that the evil one begins to sow seeds of doubt and, and to cause this sense of distrust between humans and their creator. In a sense, he's telling them to depart. He's tempting them. Depart from God's way. I know what God said, but maybe, just maybe, God's holding out on you. God's trying to keep you down. God knows that you can do what he wants, what he does, and he doesn't want that. And so he's trying to hold you down and keep you at bay. And so he sort of tempts humans that they can decide right from wrong and that they can pursue and take hold of the good life on their terms. And so this choice to depart from God, and I want us to remember that God is the very source of life, right? That's what the creation story tells us. And so to leave or to depart from God's way, it fractures or compromises the shalom of a good creation, and it opens the door for death. If you are departing from the place or the source of life, you are going away from life, you are going in the direction of death. And in the text, we see this ripple effect, right? We see this relational fracture that happens between us and God. We see this fracture in our own relationship. We see this a fracture in our relationship with one another, and then we see this fracture in the world around us, and now sin and death like a disease has infected God's good creation. And we just have to own the fact that's infected us as well. See, we're reminded that this is not just Adam and Eve's story, this is my story. And if you're honest with yourself, you will see that it is your story as well. It's not just that we inherit a broken state, like this is the broken world that we're in. I guess this is, you know, where we live now and we just got to make the most of it. We have to also see that there is a sense in which it's like a serpent is coiled around our own hearts, sowing these seeds of doubt and distrust and leading us astray as we add to the folly, as we add to the rebellion in the world around us. And so when we acknowledge that, and that's a hard thing to do, particularly in our culture, but when we acknowledge the sheer weight and the magnitude of brokenness in our world, that which we've done, that which is being done around us, the question becomes, well, what should our response to that be? And we actually heard it this morning as Carissa led us in Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament. And lament is to hold out our grief to God, to just acknowledge, God, this is the state of our world, and then to even, in a sense, issue a complaint to God. Did you ever think about that, that God is actually okay with us issuing these complaints? To say, God, how long? Like, the world is a mess. How long until you do something about it? How long until, as you promised in the garden, you will crush evil and remove it from your creation? But lament is not just like general orneriness, right? Like we're just like cranky about our state of our world, like an old person saying, get off my lawn. That's not what it's about. And nor is it a sense of hopelessness that we just are like, I guess it's just going to keep getting worse. Rather, it's always rooted by looking back on who God is and remembering his goodness and his faithfulness to his creation, and out of that, that will always engender within us a new and fresh, forward-looking hope. God, you will work. You have worked in the past, and we can trust you to work decisively again. But as I've been thinking about this, in order for lament to be genuine, it requires something from us. It requires that at some level we would do the hard inner work of looking at ourselves and owning our compliance with the broken systems of the world, the places where we live into those stories, the places where we rebel and where we fall short. You know that old adage that when you point a finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And so the proper response for us as individuals, and particularly as a community of people who are trying to follow Jesus, is that we wouldn't just lament, but that we would also repent. And repentance, one of those classic church words, right? We don't really talk about it outside in our regular lives. And if we're honest, we don't really talk about it much inside the church either. But throughout all of the scriptures, this idea of repentance, is shown to be a necessary response to God in light of our sin and our shame and our brokenness. And so in the New Testament, if you were to look and do a word study for the word repent, the word, I'm going to butcher it, but it's metano, yeah. Was that Brad? I, I, was it Brad? Did you yell it out? Somebody yelled it out. Metananoia. Metananeo? Okay, there it is. It's on the screen. You just make your own pronunciation up. Here's the thing. If you go and look for that book, I knew I was going to butcher it. I did it great this morning uh, down in my basement, but you guys weren't watching me, so I repent of that. Uh, Okay, It, it occurs about 30 times in the scriptures, and particularly the places you find it are in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I'm always fascinated by is that the idea of repentance is very central to Jesus' main message. If you go and you read the Gospels and you find the thing that Jesus cared the most about, the thing that he went back to time and again, uh, the word repent is there. And so here's Matthew 4, it says this, that from that time on, this isn't a one-time message, this is Jesus' central message. He says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Mark 1, it's phrased this way, the time has come, Jesus said, that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe gospel. And so it becomes clear that if we were to align ourselves with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the reign and the rule of God in this world, uh, it would require that we would do this thing called repent. But what are we talking about when we use that word? And far more importantly, what is Jesus talking about when he uses that word? Because I think, and here's what we're going to We're going to go spend some time in the Old Testament in a moment. But here's the thing we need to remember, that this word just it lived in ancient Israel. And we can't forget that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, right? And he's not speaking in a way that is beyond people. He is speaking to them in terms that they understand. He is speaking in a way that his audience would understand. So what is going on with this word repent? Well, if you go to the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is much easier to say. It's the word shuv. And if you were to say to repent, it's the phrase "teshuvah." And these are important terms in the Hebrew scriptures. They show up 30 times in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the word shuv, over a thousand times. This is critical. This is something important. Shuv is a word that reveals to us that the repentance is not just about saying, I'm sorry, although I'm certain that's part of it we're going through this thing where we're raising little humans in our home. And, and I sometimes think that in our effort to teach our kids how to apologize, that they've kind of devolved into this sort of transactional thing. I, I've, I mean, I'm not good at saying I'm sorry, so I just have to like respect that my kids are doing it. But. But I feel like sometimes, you know, they do a wrong thing they get called out on it. They get reprimanded. And it's almost like these are the magic words. You just say it to get out of trouble. Like, I'm sorry. And then you go and you don't feel anything. I'm like, do you even feel remorse? Like, or is this just the magic word that lets you go back into playing? And so that's just a quick look at my parenting. Um, but, 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 you know, it seems like they kind of run off and there's no feeling behind it. It's just words. But then is that what repentance is? Is repentance all about what I feel, right? Is it about feeling overcome with shame and guilt and feeling really, really, really bad about something? Well, again, I think feelings probably play a role in here, but there's something much more happening in this word. See, shuv's literal meaning is to turn back or to return to something. And so we have to view it through the lens of being something holistic. This is something that encompasses all of our being, not just our feelings, not just our words, but also our actions as well. And I was thinking about this, how much sense this makes, because Jesus says, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what does he say? He says, you need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And then the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, which I would imagine is also a very all-encompassing thing. And so it seems that what Jesus is saying is to be in right relationship with God is not just something that you think, it's not just something that you say, but it requires your whole very being, every fiber of you. And so it would make sense to me that being drawn into this right relationship with God would on some level also be an all-encompassing thing as well. That there would be a measure of change that, uh, that resides in my life as I order or reorder both my inner life and my outer life around what I've come to discover about who God is. And the ancient nation of Israel knew this well. And not simply because God spoke this word to them, but because they were stiff-necked people. These were people who were stubborn in their disobedience. If you read the Old Testament, you see them again and again and again turning away and having to come back, turning away. Just read the Book of Judges. It is nonstop of rejecting God, cursed lands at their doorstep. They repent and turn back, and God rescues over and over and over. And if you know the story of Israel, these are people who had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God had raised up Moses to rescue them, right, through the Passover and the Exodus. And then he brings them out to Mount Sinai. And there he enters into covenant with them. He enters into promise with them. He's going to make them a special nation, a special people. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And before they go into the promised land, as God has laid out what it means to be his special people, how to live in accordance and relationship with him, um, we've looked at this passage before, but Moses says this in Deuteronomy 30, see I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse." Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to His voice and hold fast to Him for the Lord is your life. Well, the story that we looked at last week in the Garden of Eden, still fresh in our ears, can you hear it being echoed in this text this morning? God is saying that life resides with Him His way is life-giving. His way leads to blessing and to shalom. But if you were to depart from it, if you were to go your own way, the way of the nations, it leads away from the life of God. It leads towards destruction and curse. And so like Adam and Eve with the tree, Israel is being given a choice in how they would live. And what you see is that Israel's story is also Adam and Eve's story. And like we looked at last week, Adam and Eve's story is also our story. And so when we understand that, we see in the life of Israel, it does not take them very long. They start off really well, and then they begin to crave what they see happening around them. They begin to think, okay, those countries have kings. Maybe we should have a king. Ooh, they have other gods, and we'll keep Yahweh to be our chief god, but maybe we'll dabble in there. Maybe there's like some unknown blessing there. We can kind of augment our faith with them. And very quickly, Israel looks like all the other nations, characterized by injustice towards the poor and the vulnerable, filled with idolatry. And these are people who had made a choice, and now they had begun walking down the path of the nations. And so God sends prophets to the people to warn them. And their message was this, you are being disobedient. It is going to lead to curse. You have broken the covenant you made with God. So repent, teshuvah, turn back to God that he may forgive you and rescue you from what you have done. You ever put something into your GPS in your car? And you're driving, but then you're like, I think I know a better way. And you start turning, and then it starts saying to you, no, you're going the wrong way. You need to to turn around, right? You need to do a U-turn here. You need to, like, do three rights or whatever it takes to to get all the way around, right? It's like that. The the prophets come and say, you need to turn around. You're going the wrong direction. It will not get you where you want to go. And there's lots of passages in the Old Testament. Like I said, there's a 1,000 of them that we could turn to, and we could unpack this idea of shuv. Uh, If you were to go to uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah, and those are big books, but they show up like 170 times in those books alone. But this morning, I want us to go back even further. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And this is uh, during the reign of a king named Solomon. Solomon was the son of David, this great king of Israel. And in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon has just finished building the temple of the Lord, and he has commissioned it. And now God is speaking to Solomon and to the people of Israel. And within this conversation, God is outlining the holistic nature of repentance. It's like even at the front end, God's like, I know you're going to mess this up. So I want to show you the pathway back. And so he lays it out clearly what that looks like. So this is Second Chronicles 7, uh, beginning at verse 13. God speaking, he says, when I shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land." Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. When you disobey, God says, not if you disobey, when you disobey, and the consequences of your actions are all around you, here is how you're to respond. Humble yourself, pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. This is the pathway of holistic repentance. Teshuvah, turning back to God in repentance, begins with humility. It makes sense if we went back to the story we looked at last week in the garden. It was Adam and Eve convincing themselves, what? That they could be like God. That they could do what God does, pride, always lurking in the background somewhere. So that first step is a step of humility, being willing to lower yourself, to just maybe acknowledge, could it be, is it not very likely that I'm not as brilliant, that I'm not as capable, that I'm not as good as I like to think that I am? That's a tough call in our world, isn't it? But it's a starting place to say, could it be that I don't have it all figured out? Being honest with yourself enough that I might begin to take inventory of every part of my life, my thought life, how I express myself emotionally, where I find my identity, where I find my security, how I relate to myself or to each other or to God or to the world, the ideologies that I'm being shaped by the activities that I give myself to, how I'm influenced by things like money, by power, by my own desires. And as we do this inner work, this ought to move us towards prayer, inviting God into the situation. And this gets, I think, worked out at least in two ways. First, in connection with being humble. It's maybe beginning to recognize I don't always identify my brokenness accurately. Sometimes I need an outside voice to show me my blind spots. You know, that that story of like a fish in an aquarium doesn't know that it's wet, or like how many things in the world around me am I being shaped for? The world has normalized something that maybe doesn't line up with God's best for me. And so I might need God's voice to speak into it, to stir, to, to convict even. Creating space to ask God to begin to reveal where, do I have sin, where do I have brokenness? It's part of the process. And I think about the garden last week, that God is walking through the garden calling out, where are you, to Adam and Eve, from behind the trees to bring things into the light. That sounds super scary, but God's commitment, don't forget this, God's commitment is that he wants to bring you to wholeness. He wants to bring you to life, and He's the one, the only one, that can be trusted with this. But see, prayer is also that opportunity to voice our acknowledgement of sin before God, to lay it before Him, and to, yeah, say, God, I'm sorry. I repent, I feel regret and sorrow. I see how my actions, or my thoughts, or whatever it happens to be, is distorting what it means for me to be human. And then the third step, is to seek God's face. This is all about allowing God to speak truth to you and I, to show us the way it's supposed to be. Maybe, for example, we just get the sense that we're not engaging relationally in a way that's best for us. Or maybe on the flip side, we've noticed that we live lives that are really kind of closed-handed, right, that we have a scarcity mindset. We feel like, maybe I just can't help someone else. I can't bless someone else because I feel like I might not have enough for me. And when we bring that to God, and we're like, God, I-, I can see how this is distorting me. I can see how this is affecting me in a way I don't like. But at some point, we need to hear back from God. We need to hear from God to show us what it looks like to live in a life-giving relationship. At some point, it might be looking to the scriptures to find out what it means to live with open hands, that trust in his goodness. That's not just for me, but for my neighbor. maybe, just maybe, the way that God wants to reveal himself to my neighbor is through me. And this is the point where we've moved beyond feeling bad and saying that we're sorry to discovering what life in God looks like. This is the Teshuvah. This is the turning back to Him and, and His will in our lives. And as we turn back towards Him and we begin to actively pick up His ways, it stands to reason that it's probably also going to demand that we put something down. That we turn from our wicked ways, that we turn away from the very things that were leading us astray. This is Teshava. This is turning away from the world and and back towards God, embracing his life. And it is a process. This is not a one and done kind of thing. Like I went to Bible camp when I was nine and I prayed this prayer. Now I'm gold. Now I got it all figured out No, we keep dirtying ourselves. We keep tripping up. We we keep uh, making a mess of things. And sometimes this whole process looks like two steps forward, one step back. But as an ongoing commitment in how we live before God, he sees it and he honors it and he forgives and he heals. He delights in it. Like, God's not there angry waiting for us. He delights in it, because this is his desire, is to piece us back together and to make us whole. So one of the places that I struggle with in my humanity, so I'm just going to tell you about it, is that I am not typically a very patient person. Now, when I'm at church and i mean doing church life, like, I can, like, fake it pretty good. But you know when you go home, right, and then your walls come down and you're the people who know you and they're stuck with you, uh, that's, like, when the sin nature kind of comes out for me more, right? And so, uh, you know, I tend to be an impatient person. And, I mean, I know part of that is my family of origin. We could follow that back up my family tree and see why it's that way. But here's the thing, I don't get to let myself off the hook, right, I'm responsible for me. And so I know that at its root, It's because I have a selfish nature, is that I like it to be my way. Maybe I'm not quite a control freak, but I certainly like things to be my way. And so that's one of the ways my selfishness manifests. But the problem is, I also know that the fruit of the Spirit tells me that when the fruit of the Spirit is exhibited in my life, it will include patience. And that's super frustrating, because I also know that that is exactly God's posture towards me. He's very patient with me. And so as a follower of Jesus, this is something I need to take seriously. This is something that I need to uh, not resign myself to, or justify it, or brush it off. I have to stare this thing in the face and be like, what am I going to do about this? And it comes so naturally. Right? It's just kind of dug way down, and I can chalk it up to the fact that I'm tired or I'm stressed or you know, kids are annoying, like whatever it happens to be, right? But the process of turning from this is a really long go, and it doesn't always feel like two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it feels like one step forward and two steps back. Do you know what I mean? Like, have you ever experienced that in your life? But in that ongoing commitment, I recognize that this is not what is best for me, that this is not best for my family dynamic. And so, you, you know, honestly, the feeling bad part comes pretty easy, and I can, like my kids, say that I'm sorry, right? Um, and I need to work at times at dragging it out into the light, which means not just saying sorry to God like I did, blew it again, but this means sometimes going to my kids and being like, you know what? Dad, dropped the ball on this. Like, like, I should not have gotten annoyed that much, and so will you forgive me? And if you ever want to feel humble, like, let a child hold the power of saying, yes, I forgive you, because they'll take their time. <laughs> they will take their time, right? <laughs> but then it's also about inviting the Spirit of God to come and say, how are you going to form me, and shape me, and, and, and living into the fact that God is still patient with me, and how are you going to make me more like Jesus? And sometimes it goes well. But the really annoying thing about that is when it goes well, nobody knows, right? Because you feel like the the impatience coming, and you take a deep breath, and you, okay, I'm just going to chill. But then nobody knows that you're about to be impatient. But if you talk to my family, and, and they're all here today, you can pull them, and they will tell you that I have a long way to go on this, that I have not figured this out. But that's what the journey of faith is all about. It's an ongoing commitment that I would lean into what God wants for me. This is just a small area of my life, right? Well, they might argue it's a big area in my life. But it's an ongoing commitment to say, God, who are you calling me to be? And how do I live into that? And how will I open myself up to being formed and shaped to be more like Jesus? Paul says this thing in Romans 7, that he doesn't do the things he wants to do, but he does the things that he doesn't want to do, right? And then he finishes this. He says, what a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death like i'm so tired of being broken but he says thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord therein lies the good news of the gospel right on my own trying to pull myself up by my own bootstraps it might go well for a while but eventually willpower is going to crumble but christ in me As I would open myself up to the Spirit's work bit by bit, brushing off the rough edges, smoothening me out to become who God created me to be. That's good news. In Luke 19, there's this story, and you can turn to it if you want to. There's a story about a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. And this is a Jewish man who made choices to align himself with the Roman Empire. He's collecting taxes that are feeding the machine of Caesar And as it was typically customary in the rule is that he could take a little bit of extra and he could just sort of stuff his own pockets and get very wealthy on the side. And so Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is a short man. And I tend to think that Luke includes this for two reasons. One is that he's physically of short stature. He's not very tall. But I think implicit to this is the reminder that everybody around him looks down on him. And that's not simply because he's not very tall. This is because of his choices. This is a person who has been a traitor to God's people, somebody who is not only strengthening the enemy, but also at the same time weakening his own people. And I have to imagine that for Zacchaeus kind of having, uh, he probably didn't have very much trouble feeling bad about the choices that he had made and what it had become in him. And if you think that our world has a cancel culture, In the cancel culture of Zacchaeus' day, there was no pathway back after a decision like this. And so maybe he buried those feelings. Maybe he justified it one way or another. Maybe he just medicated himself with the financial freedom that he had uh, created. He could just buy more and just experience more. But all of this changes one day because Jesus comes to town. And that's actually enough for Zacchaeus. He exhibits a sense of curiosity. He wants to know a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he's about. But the problem is, is that Zacchaeus is short, and Jesus draws a crowd. And so as everybody's crowding around Jesus, nobody's letting the tax collector, and they're like, you know, get out of here. You have no jurisdiction here. Go take a hike. But Zacchaeus is uh, by far an enterprising man, and so he runs up the street, and he shimmies up a tree, and he's just going to kind of wait there and see if he can catch a glimpse of Jesus. Now, if a regular Jew had rejected Zacchaeus for his choices, he was probably under no illusions that this good and devout rabbi in Jesus would pay him any attention. And yet, as Jesus walks by, he suddenly stops, and he looks up into the tree, and he calls Zacchaeus by name. And he says, come down. I want to come to your place for a meal. I want to share a table with you stunned, Zacchaeus climbs down, and the crowd kind of begrudgingly parts, right? And they're grumbling because he's a sinner, and what is Jesus doing giving him any amount of time? And Zacchaeus leads Jesus home, and he opens his life and his world to him. And not much of their dinner talk is recorded in the story. It kind of all exists behind the verses, but this is how it ends in verse 8. It says that Zacchaeus stood up. And he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The story of Zacchaeus illustrates on one level for me what repentance should look like. This is a man who probably, as he does the inner work of his own life, has no trouble recognizing his flaws and the fruit of his bad choices. Maybe for years, he has doubled down on them, stuffed the shame away, allowed his heart to get bitter, justified his actions. I don't know. But in Luke 19 he definitively shows humility. Grown men don't climb trees, particularly grown men who are wealthy. And he feels this tension between his own brokenness and the goodness of what he sees in Jesus. And maybe he doubts that Jesus will care enough. You know, he's done too much. He's too big of a sinner. Everybody else is right. I'm a lost cause, and yet, he is compelled to draw closer. He wants to see Jesus. And in the same way we looked at last week, the way that God calls Adam and Eve from out behind the trees, Jesus calls the is down from his. And this is the moment. Because he feels bad. He's got regret. But is he going to let Jesus into his life? Like really let him in. Like Jesus is going to sit at his table and he's going to look around and he's going to see all the things that he's accumulated in his life as a tax collector. He's going to see the servants moving back and forth uh, serving the meal and he's going to know definitively how all of this came to be. And Jesus is going to have thoughts about that. Jesus might even have opinions about that. And as terrifying as that might be for Zacchaeus, He senses that something exponentially better will come from it if he opens his life up to Jesus. And so, he brings him home. He brings him home and he lets him in he seats him at his table and here behind the scenes of the verses that we're not allowed into, he experiences and encounters grace and acceptance. And in Jesus, he sees a new and different way to be human. And that's the thing that he wants. Teshava, for Zacchaeus, is not just a feeling. It's not just some words. It takes the form of action as he turns from his wicked ways. And he tangibly reimburses all those that he has wronged and extorted. And this is costly, no doubt. But it doesn't matter. Because for Zacchaeus, he wants to turn towards Jesus. And that means repenting. It means turning away or letting go of who he once was. I'm not sure what happens in Zacchaeus's life after this. Earlier, if you were to read in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, there's some tax collectors who come to John the Baptist. And they say to John the Baptist, what would fruit of repentance look like in our life? And he says, well, you can keep doing your job. But you just need to be honest in your dealings. You can't charge people more than you're supposed to. And so maybe Zacchaeus changes jobs. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he stays a tax collector. Maybe he tries to do it more honestly. And some days, it seems pretty easy. But what about on the days where the bills are piling up and he's uh, you know, a little bit short on cash. He's like, man, if I could just pull a little bit more, like, like I could get takeout tonight. He begins to cut corners maybe there, I don't know. But it's maybe an ongoing process of teshava, fostering a posture of humility, coming back and asking for forgiveness, seeking God's way to understand what is true and right, and then making that choice to turn away from the thing that was destroying you. And where it's two steps forward and one step back, or one step forward and two steps back, when it's a bit of a grind, What a beautiful reminder that every time we turn back towards Jesus, we are met with mercy. And understand this, Jesus does not give you mercy begrudgingly. Like he is stoked to do it. He is enthusiastic because ultimately this is the heart of God, that you would be free, that you'd be invited into true life, and we're going to look at a, a story next week. I hope you can make it. We're going to look at a story, one of the, these great parables of Jesus that just exhibits this in such a profound way. But for now, as we close, I want us to hear those words from 2 Chronicles 7 once more. And here's what we're going to do, kind of do like a listening exercise together. And you can do this at home online as well. But I want to give you space to reflect quietly in your own life. And ask God to reveal to you these four stages. You know, we might need to pick them all up. Maybe there's one or two that we know that we need to pick up as part of our uh, repentance. And so uh, we're just going to listen to the words. I'm going to give you silence at the front end just to ask God to say, you know, as I hear these words, guys, there's something I need to pick up. Is there something of these sort of four steps as they've been outlined today that I need to pay attention to? And then we're going might, to, I might read it twice maybe. You, you guys are on board for this? Good, okay. So we're gonna sit quietly for a moment and I'm gonna let you kind of reflect in your hearts. Then I'm gonna read, we're gonna reflect again, and maybe we'll read again, okay. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. As you listened and reflected, did more than one, one or more of these kind of stages or components of repentance stir within you? Maybe it's fostering that posture of humility. I just need to stop believing. I've got it all figured out. Maybe it's the call to reach out to God, to invite him into it. Maybe it's the seeking of his face that we would turn to the scriptures to see what it looks like to live his way more clearly. Maybe it's actually the act of turning away from something you know is not good for you. This is an ongoing process in all of our lives that all of us are continually being called into. Here's where I'm going to ask you to be brave. I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and to share with them which or however many of those particular components you kind of felt God stirring. You don't need to give details around. You don't have to say what you're turning away from or, or where you need to feel humility. You just have to maybe turn and say, you know, I feel like I, stuff I got to turn away from or there's a place where I need to seek God more. You don't need to, to go into those details. And I'm just going to give us a minute to do that. And just going to ask you to try to be brave and to say it out loud to somebody else. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then the worship team will come and help lead us back to the table. So you can do that now. And if you're online, you can do it with someone who's sitting beside you as well. Father, as you hear these voices speaking to one another, I know there's joy in your heart. That whatever stage of this sort of repentance journey we find ourselves being stirred, whether that's those who feel like they just need to own the fact that they don't have it all figured out, whether it's those of us who need to invite you into the situation or just need to, again, tell you how we feel. For those of us who need to maybe turn back to the truth in scriptures and allow that to form and shape us, or for those of us who we just really feel a compulsion to turn away from something, to stop something that we know which is not good for us. Whatever stage of this journey, Father, you meet us in the midst of it, and there is great joy in your heart that we um, have processed this, that we've shared it, that we're maybe opening ourselves up to your power and your spirit in us. And so I pray for each of us, I pray that you would continue to invite us into this journey, that you would allow us the courage to open ourselves up to your spirit more and more, and that we would do the inner work and the outer work, that we would be people of Teshava, that we would turn back to you with our whole hearts, our whole very selves, that we would love you with our, our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strengths, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you again for your grace and for your mercy that you meet us no matter how often we stumble, that you keep coaxing us forward into your life. And so lead us forward, we pray. ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wherever you are this morning, however you find yourself, maybe you still find yourself hiding behind the trees in shame. Maybe you find yourself climbing one of those trees out of curiosity to see Jesus. Hear his words. This is Jesus' invitation to you this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the invitation to each and every one of us this morning, whether we are new in the faith, whether we've been following Jesus for decades. Turn from that which is eroding your soul, that which weighs you down, which causes you grief, and turn back to him, to Shavah to come and find that he greets you with grace and with rest and with life. And so may we remember that he has set before us life and death, blessing and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. May you go knowing the life that God holds out to you and have the courage to turn back to him again and again and again, believing that he meets you with mercy And with grace, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.